Please turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm curious, uh, do we have any, any shepherds in the audience this morning? Any shepherds? A shepherd. We have one. See, you know, and I, I didn't, two, I didn't think we had any actual sh- real, like, physical shepherds. I knew we'd have ranchers and cowboys, because this is Texas, right? You know, when we think of a rancher or a cowboy, we think of somebody really tough, right? This is Texas. Shepherds? Uh, maybe not so much. It's not really an image that we're familiar with at all. We don't have a lot of shepherds around us. Uh, but in ancient Israel, shepherd was uh, a really tough, tough person. They lived outdoors uh, months at a time. They had to care for their sheep and defend their sheep against all kinds of predators, lions and bears and uh, robbers that would come through. There were no hospitals anywhere. They were, they were the image of toughness and tenderness, both caring for their sheep, but also physical strength. And so through the years, the image of shepherd came to be the idealized form of a leader. Abraham was a shepherd, Isaac was a shepherd, Jacob was a shepherd, Moses was a shepherd, and when Moses was dying and leaving this earth, he prayed to God, God, provide Israel with another shepherd. Don't let them be a people who are like sheep without a shepherd, wandering with no one to guide them, no one to tenderly care for them, no one to be strong for them on their behalf. And so this idea of a shepherd was the idealized leader in Israel. David was literally a shepherd. Psalm chapter 78, this is written about him. The Lord chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with lambs he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. He was uh, the best shepherd that Israel ever had. And if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, basically it's a history of the failure of Israel's shepherds. Her spiritual and social leaders, by and large, there were, there were a few shining exceptions like Josiah, but by and large, there, it was a history of failure, and their failure was so bad, they led the people to disobedience of God, and ultimately they were taken off of the land as God disciplined them. Ezekiel writes about that in Ezekiel chapter 34. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, This, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. This is the Lord's condemnation of the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field, and they were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains on a, and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search for them or to seek for them. No one sought them out. And so God condemns the shepherds of Israel, and he says, I'm going to intervene on behalf of my people, and I will become their shepherd, and I will rescue my people. Look with me in verse 11. 
For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and and, in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. When Jesus Christ came onto the scene, he said of himself, I am the fulfillment of that promise from God. I am the good shepherd. I am the embodiment of God, seeking out his people and rescuing his people. And so this morning we're going to look at Jesus Christ and his teaching about himself and his role as the good shepherd of Israel. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 10 and verse 1. John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus said, Truly, truly, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, this metaphor, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand those things which he had been saying to them. Jesus was saying something that they really couldn't understand. He was proclaiming himself as the good shepherd. And the first thing that a good shepherd does is he calls his sheep. Now, it helps to know the, the, the physical layout here, the, the image behind what Jesus is talking about, because there were sev- several ways that a, a sheepfold could be constructed. Sometimes out in an open field, the shepherds would gather their sheep together and they would erect a temporary fence. But what he's talking about here is not that. He's talking about uh, a courtyard, basically. There would be a home or a building, and then on the other sides of it, walls would extend and they would create this courtyard, stone wall. Usually they'd have briars or thorns on top of that. And if robbers wanted to come, they would climb through these. They would cut the thorns and remove the thorns and they would climb in. And Jesus is making an indictment, just as the Lord did, against the false shepherds. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, scribes, the Levites, the ones who are oppressing the people. And he's presenting himself as the alternative, the good shepherd who cares for the sheep. Because in this sheepfold, there was just one opening and there was a doorkeeper there. And there would be many flocks that had been driven into this sheepfold. And so the doorkeeper had to know each shepherd who was keeping sheep there. When a shepherd would come in that he knew, he would allow that shepherd to come into the door and then that shepherd would have a unique call for his sheep. And his sheep knew his voice. They knew the sound of his voice. And so he could call out at the door of the sheepfold and all of his sheep would filter their way out. They would come out and they would follow him. Jesus says, I don't just have a unique call. I call each of my sheep by name. Jesus Christ has a name for each and every one of his sheep. 
He knows you that well. I don't know if you've ever met someone and then you see that person again in a couple weeks and they've forgotten your name. You ever have that experience? And then you, you see them again in another couple weeks and you've reintroduced yourself and they don't remember your name. And then, you know, you see them a month later and they don't remember your name. I, I've, I know a guy, I've known him mm, 25 plus years. He doesn't know my name. 20, I mean, this is, gosh, yeah, 25, probably 25 years. I, I cannot tell you how many times I have told this guy my name and he never remembers my name. You know what? That hurts my feelings. That offends me. I, I'm at, you know, actually, probably, I don't even feel hurt anymore. I feel mad. My, you know, I know your name. I learned your name the first time. And I will tell you, honestly, I work really, really hard at learning people's names. And people sometimes go, wow, you're really good at that. No, I'm not. I'm terrible at it. Maybe some people are good at it. Most people are terrible at it. But some of us work at it because it's really important. If I can see someone and meet them and remember their name, and so I really work hard. I can't remember everyone's name in this church, but I will tell you, I try. And sometimes I take out our old picture book and I just flip through it. And I look at the faces and I look at the names because I want to know because it's important have you ever felt that when, when you've met someone and the next time you see them, they know your name? It, 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 it's, it means something. It's significant. And you can't help but feel, well, they, they have some value toward me or they, they respect something about me. They, they made the effort and they remembered my name. When people are really close friends, they remember one another's name, don't they? <laughs> you know, they don't. They don't reintroduce themselves each time. As a matter of fact, when they're really close friends, they create nicknames for one another, don't they? They have an extra special name. Husbands and wives have nicknames for one another. They name each other because it represents intimacy and relationship. I want you to look at one passage. Keep your place here in John. Turn back to the book of Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? Churches, plural. It's a message to Pergamum, but it's a message that applies to all the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Wow, God's going to nickname you. That's, you never probably thought of it in those terms when you read Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, did you? But he says, to those who overcome and those who are faithful and endure, who are really uh, my friend, I'm going to name them with a special name. And it's going to be a name just between the two of us. No one else is going to know that name. Can you imagine right now, there may be all kinds of people out there who don't remember your name, who don't care enough to remember your name, who don't value you enough to remember your name. But the God of the universe knows your name and has already created in his mind a nickname for you because he loves you and values you that much. The good shepherd doesn't just call out and draw those to himself that belong to him. He actually names them one by one. I know your name. The God of the universe right now knows your name. Second thing that a good shepherd does is he provides for the needs of his sheep. Turn back with me again to John chapter 10 and verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
You notice Jesus changed the metaphors. That doesn't bother him. You know, it bothers us a little bit. He was the shepherd, now he's the door. He says, I'm the door of the sheep. And what he's saying is there's only one way to get in. As he said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There was only one door for a sheepfold. And Jesus says, I I am the door. I am the way in. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and not just have life, but that they might have it abundantly. I'm the door. They come in through me and they are saved. And then they can come in and go out and they can find pasture. They can have all of their needs met. They can have abundance, but only in me. But only in me. Now it helps to know the the background about what Jesus is talking about historically. He is beginning his teaching on being the good shepherd in between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Festival of Lights. He's in between two feasts. I want you to turn back to John chapter 7 with me. Verse 2. It says, now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, or the feast of tabernacles, was near. This is a feast that happened around uh, November, December. It's a feast that commemorated Israel being rescued out of Egypt and being provided for in the wilderness. As they wandered through the wilderness, they couldn't set up a permanent dwelling. God didn't want them to make homes out in the wilderness because that wasn't the promised land. He said, I just want you to pitch a tent, and then you're going to pull up stakes and you're going to move on. It's just going to be a temporary dwelling, but everywhere that you dwell temporarily in the desert, I will provide for you. If you need water, I will give you water. If you need bread, you will have manna. If you need meat, I will bring you quail. I will provide all of your needs. You're going to walk for 40 years and your sandals won't wear out. Okay? Everything that you need, you will have. And so the Feast of Tabernacles reflected back on their time in the wilderness where God provided good pasture, so to speak. Everything that they needed to be personally sustained and their, their livestock sustained was provided. Now that they're in the promised land, the Feast of Tabernacles also looked to the future, to that time when God would bring them into the kingdom. That is, his Messiah would return and they would have freedom from all of their enemies and everyone would come up, all nations into Jerusalem and they would pitch tents around Jerusalem. They would make temporary dwellings, but they would dwell in safety in the land. There would be no enemies to attack. All provision would be met. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was all about the provision of God. I want you to turn with me to chapter 7 and verse 37. And Jesus says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, that is the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us he's talking about the spirit because on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a ceremony in which they go to the pool of Siloam and they would pour out water as an image of God providing them with the Spirit, and Jesus stands up in the midst of the crowd and he says, I am living water, and I will create living water pouring forth from you. Okay, so he's drawing on all these images. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is ended, and there's a two or three week period before the Festival of Lights or uh, Hanukkah, 
as we know it now. Hanukkah was not one of the prescribed feasts in the Bible, but it was really a a very important feast in Jesus' day. It's called the Festival of Lights. I want you to look with me in chapter 8, verse 12. It says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's drawing on all these images that are swirling around their minds as they're in Jerusalem for these festivals. Uh, Hanukkah, if you uh, remember your, your Jewish history, was a festival in which the temple was rededicated after it had been desecrated. The Syrian army under Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who fashioned himself as a god, he came in to Jerusalem, he captured the city, he took over the temple, and he brought in idol worship. He set up an idol to Baal, one of the local gods, and he sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar. He desecrated the temple. And so there was this great Jewish uprising led by Judas Maccabeus, and he rallied his family, he rallied other Jewish uh, supporters, and they pushed the Syrians out, and they retook the temple about 165 BC, and they rededicated it. And they called this the Festival of Lights, because the light of Israel, the glory of God was restored to the temple. Worship was restored to the temple. The people could worship again because their temple was no longer desecrated. Josephus wrote this shortly after the time of Jesus. He says, from that time, that is from the time that we drove the Syrians out, even to the present we observe this festival, which we call the Festival of Lights. Giving this name to it, I think, from the fact that the right to worship appeared to us at a time when we hardly even dared to hope for it. And so Jesus stands in their midst and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now turn one page further to John chapter 8, verse 57. This is at the end of one of Jesus' debates with the Jewish leaders, with the false shepherds. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Wow. They didn't miss the point. When Moses wanted to know who God was, God revealed himself and he said, when you go to my people and they want to know what my name is, you tell them I am. I am that I am. I'm the pre-existent one. I am presently existent. I always will be. I am present tense. I am. I am and there is no other. Now Jesus stands in their midst and he says, before Abraham was even born, I am. And he doesn't say anything else about just I am. And they knew what he was saying. He was equating himself with Yahweh, the Lord God. And so they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he was saying, I am God. I am the light of the world. I am the restoration of worship. And he's going to go on and say now, I am the good shepherd. I am the only one who can provide for your needs. I am the only one who can restore your worship of the Lord. Because I am the Lord. Jesus performs a miracle in John chapter 9. That drives home the point. John 9 verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. Okay, so he's passing by uh, the temple 
area. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he should be born blind. You'll notice that uh, how you frame the question anticipates only a narrow response. Okay, There are only two options in the disciples' mind. They see someone who has a physical ailment and they say, someone sinned. It's got to be either his parents or he himself sinned. So Jesus, which is it? And Jesus, never willing to be confined by their categories of thought, says you're missing the point entirely. It's not this man, and it's not his parents. It is for one purpose, so that I would pass by him on this particular day, and I would heal him to the glory of God. And you're totally missing the point. Your world is, is much too narrowly defined. Jesus answered, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God would be displayed in him. And so Jesus comes to the man, and he puts mud on his eyes. He sends him down to the pool of Siloam, where they have just had this this, uh, ritual of uh, bringing in the water that brings life to the nation. And he washes his eyes. The man opens up, and he sees. Blind from birth, sitting his whole life by the temple. Everybody knows who he is. They've seen him. He's never seen anything before. He's never seen Jesus because he doesn't know who it is who cleansed his eyes and put mud on them and, and allowed him to see. He doesn't know who healed him. Someone told me, put mud on my eyes. He anointed my eyes with mud and then I washed and now I can see. I don't know who he is. And the leadership of Israel, the shepherds call him in and they say, who did this to you? He says, I don't know, but he begins to explain what happened. They say, well, we don't believe you were born blind. (laughs) okay but I was we don't believe you get his parents in here they haul his parents in and his parents are afraid of the shepherds of Israel why are they afraid of their shepherds because their shepherds are false shepherds and they abuse the people and they don't want to cross these folks is this your son well yeah he's our son but we don't know how he got healed sorry you have to ask him he's of age he's old enough ask him and they're backing away so They don't believe the parents. They call the man in another time, a second time. Look at me in verse 24. A second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. I only know one thing. Once I was blind, and now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? That's a great response. He's not afraid. His parents are totally freaked out and afraid. He's not afraid. He's right in their faces. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Great logic, isn't it? They answered him, oh, yeah, well, you were born entirely in your sins. Who are you to be teaching us? And they throw him out. Do you see the image there? 
What are the shepherds of Israel doing for the man born blind, sitting every day at the temple begging? What are they doing? Absolutely nothing. And when he is healed, what do they do? They cast him out. Okay, this is what the Lord said in Ezekiel 34. This is what the false shepherds do. They don't care for the people or bind them up. They cast them out. They cast them out. What does Jesus do for the man? As a good shepherd, he seeks him out and he finds him. Look in verse 35. When Jesus heard that they had cast him out, Jesus went and found him. And he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and he is the one who is talking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. Is that a heart prepared? That's a heart prepared. The shepherds his entire life had been casting him out. Now Jesus actually comes and seeks him and finds him and reveals himself to this man. And he worships. Inside of each of us, there is a a longing to be known by God. There's a longing to be sought out by God, to be found by God, to be known by God. And what happens to us in this world is sometimes other things stir up just that sense of longing. C.S. Lewis talks about this in a, a beautiful short essay. It's called The Weight of Glory. So there are all kinds of things in our world that stir up that sense of longing and we confuse that longing for the actual object. And we reach out and try and possess that object, not realizing that the longing is actually a longing for God to know God and to be known by God because Jesus Christ reveals God to us and he is the only way to God. And we get confused and we develop all these different idols around us, sometimes things, sometimes people, sometimes jobs and careers. And we think if I can just grab that more, I will be satisfied, full, rich, Jesus says, no, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who provides for your needs. Third thing that the good shepherd does is he protects his flock from danger. Look in verse 11, chapter 10. Jesus comes back to this analogy again of being a shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. He's talking about us. Who are not Jews. Not of this fold, but others of another fold. He says, I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. I love you so dearly that I will actually lay down my life for you. The hireling sees the wolf coming and what does he do? He runs away because they're not his sheep. Jesus says, I will stand. I will protect you even to the point of death. Because that's how much I love you. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Probably uh, the most famous passage about a shepherd 
is Psalm chapter 23. You know it well. Uh, Do you realize that in Psalm chapter 23, that's the only time that God is referred to as an individual's shepherd, other than John chapter 10. What I mean is throughout the Bible, God is seen as the shepherd of Israel, the shepherd of the nation, shepherd of nations, shepherd of tribes. But in Psalm chapter 23, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. And what does he do for me? Well, he makes me lie down in green pastures where there's plenty to eat. He leaves me beside still or quiet waters. I have enough to eat, enough to drink. And his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Why are the rod and staff a comfort? Because not only does he use them to guide me and direct me, but he uses them to beat off my enemies. He's my protection. Jesus, I'm a good shepherd. I'm not a hireling. These are my sheep. And so when the wolf comes, I'm going to lay down my life on your behalf. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Fourth thing that the good shepherd does is that he preserves his sheep forever. With me in chapter 10, verse 19. A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the Feast of Dedication, or the Festival of Lights, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus picks up this teaching again about himself as a shepherd. He says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him. Because again, they understand. He's not saying that we are one person. But he's saying we are one in essence. I and the father are one. And I and the father are one in purpose. He is the shepherd of Israel, and I am the good shepherd. He cares for his sheep, and I care for my sheep. And he has given me sheep, not just of this fold, but of every fold, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And I will care for them, because this is what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd doesn't lose his sheep. A good shepherd does not lose his sheep. And when one sheep is lost, what does the good shepherd do? He goes after that sheep. If a sheep wanders away, he goes after that sheep and he seeks and he finds it. He brings it back and we're told in the parable in Luke that there is celebration when what was lost is found. The good shepherd clings to his sheep. Jesus says, they are in my hand and they will not escape from my grip. They're in the father's hand and the father's grip is even greater than mine. They cannot escape the father's grip because he is a good shepherd and I am a good shepherd and we do not lose our own. This is Jesus' teaching on eternal security. Now we, we bumped up against this doctrine last week as we were talking about Matthew chapter 12 and the unpardonable sin. And uh, when I sat down at my desk on Monday, I thought, you know, I want to hit on this again. I want to come back to this because this is, this is foundational doctrine. 
When a person first understands and knows and believes that they are absolutely secure in the grip of Jesus Christ and they cannot lose their salvation, it is so freeing. It just as in a human relationship, when you know you are absolutely secure in that other person's love, it is freedom. It's freedom to grow and freedom to change. It's so motivating. Remember, we had a student here at Grace years ago who had grown up under the teaching that he could lose his salvation. There were things that he could do in which God would say, I no longer love you. You're no longer part of my fold. You're not a part of my family. I'm releasing my grip on you. That's how he had grown up. He'd always grown up under this fear. And one Sunday morning, I was teaching on this doctrine. He was sitting on the front row and he was weeping. He was just weeping. And he came up afterwards and said, I'm free. I cannot, I can't, I mean, just totally overwhelmed. And I will tell you, it completely transformed his life. It didn't motivate him to go out and sin because he was safe. It motivated him to go out and live a life that was worthy of the shepherd. And I've seen people transformed as soon as they lay hold of this doctrine that God has laid hold of them and will not release his grip. And several years ago, I had an opportunity to teach in Central Asia. It's teaching a survey of theology. I had two weeks to cover all of theology. And as I was going along teaching the survey of theology, two weeks, you know, morning to night, we hit the doctrine of eternal security. We're going through salvation. We hit eternal security. And in the former Soviet Union, no one believes in eternal security. Okay, at least at that time, no one. I had, there were maybe two or three students out of 30 that believed in the doctrine of eternal security. So I've got an, an audience that is entirely in disagreement with me. We hit the doctrine of eternal security. We begin plowing it. And we just, oh man, we just bogged down. And I realized we're going to have to stop and we're going to have to squeeze on eschatology. You know? We're going to have to squeeze on some of these other things because we have to lay this foundation. And so we stopped. We finished that day. We spent about three hours. And I went home that evening and, and I reworked all my notes. And, and we spent the entire next day going verse by verse, passage by passage, the passages that seemed to contradict this. We went through absolutely everything that they could object to. At lunchtime, I was already really, I was worn, I was tired We've been going and going and going. I sat down to have lunch, and at this lunch area, this cafeteria, there were other missionaries would come and join the students for lunch. And a doctor came in who was doing some medical relief work there, and we sat down, we're eating. He said, what are you teaching on this morning? I said, I'm teaching on the doctrine of eternal security. The fact that once you belong to God, you can never lose your salvation. And he says to me, you know, not everybody agrees with that. <laughs> I said, I know, but I cannot imagine how you cannot. And I began, you know, because I was loaded, right? I mean, I was really loaded up. I began going through this and he stops for a second. He goes, I don't agree with that. I go, how can you not agree with this? And we get in this discussion, debate, and I can't convince him. I'm really, you know, feeling really frustrated. You know, not just, I need to win on God's behalf, right? So, uh, uh, <laughs> So that, that night, I, I, went, I went back to our apartment, and I, I could not sleep, thinking, how can I convince this man? How can I convince him? Okay. And I came up, with, um, came up with an outline. If you've done the essentials class, you've seen this outline in various forms. This is in our, our, uh, the, the original essentials manual that I put together, okay, this outline. I also came up with an analogy for him. I thought, how can I get into his world? He's a doctor. So I wrote him this long, long letter. Now, let me tell you that the entire class, by the end of our time, 
believed in eternal security. Every single one of them. I never heard back from him, but I wrote him a long letter. I'm just praying that it just stirred in him, kept stirring. And this is the analogy that I gave him. I said, you're a doctor. Imagine that a person comes to you and they are experiencing uh, heart disease. And the only thing that will save that person is, is actually a heart transplant. You have the skill to take out the old heart and put a new one in. You have that skill. You have a new heart available. There is a, a, a heart transplant uh, unit that has provided a heart. It's a perfect match for this person. They come and they say, will you put a new heart in me? You have the skill. You have the desire. You want to do it. You say, absolutely, yes. Come right now. Let us, let us put a new heart in you. And you open them up. You take out the old heart. You put in a new heart. Stitch them back up. Perfect match. They recover and they live this wonderful, healthy life because you've given that person a new heart. Now imagine if in a couple of years that person comes back to you and they say, I don't want that new heart anymore. Put the old one back in. Would you do it? Would you do it? Well, no, you wouldn't for a couple of reasons. First, when you took out that old heart, it was discarded and destroyed, right? doesn't exist any longer. But second, as a doctor, you've taken an oath, Hippocratic oath, that says, I will do no harm. Okay, it is a part of your very nature as a, doctor, as a doctor that you will not do harm to another person. Even if you had that old heart, you would not put it back in because it would damage them. They couldn't live with that old heart. You will not. So the person says, well, that's all right. Well, I'll do it for myself. I'll lay down on the table. I'll cut myself open up. No, you can't because your nature has changed. As a person with a brand new heart, you don't have the skill, nor does that old heart exist to put back in even if you wanted it to. You can't do it. The doctor won't do it. This is not a transaction that can be undone. And then I walked him through the scripture. I said, it's based upon three things. First, the nature of salvation itself. Colossians chapter 2, we're told that what happened in this operation was that all of our sins were removed. Every sin, past sins, sins currently, present, sins in the future, sins in the future from the point at which I believe all sins, all debt. Jesus Christ, we're told, offered one sin once and for all, for all times, for all sins in Hebrews chapter 10. And now he always lives in Hebrews chapter 7, we're told, to make intercession for us. He will never die again, and so we cannot die again. The life that he gives us is everlasting life. It's not temporal life It's not temporary life. It's not tentative life. It is eternal life. That is the nature of salvation. It is not like a a box. It's not like a gift in that sense that you can hand to someone and then they can hand it back. It is something something that completely transforms the nature of the person who has received this transplant. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. So our nature as people who have been saved is different now. We're not the same people any longer. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that we have been regenerated, that is, born again. We were born dead, and now we are brought to life. Because God's Spirit comes in, and our spirit, which was separated, is now reunited to the Spirit of God. We are regenerated. Galatians 2, 16 tells us we, we are justified. That is, we are put into a status of right relationship with God. Ephesians 1, 5 tells us that we have been adopted by God. 
We were outside the family of God, and now he brings us into the family of God. 1-7 tells us that we have been redeemed. He paid the purchase price for us when we were slaves in the marketplace and brought us to, to himself to make us not just slaves of him, but also his family, his children. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tells us we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 30 says we've been sealed unto the day of redemption. That is, the day when we finally experience our realized salvation. When we see Jesus Christ face to face, we have been sealed, guarded, protected, locked in by the Spirit until that point in time. So, can we undo that? If we decide, no, I don't want it anymore, can we hand it back? Or can we commit some sin that is so great that God says, I want to take it back? Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Paul addresses this very question, Romans 8, verse 35. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. All these things are coming upon us. Can they separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ? He says, no, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him, that is Jesus, who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, man, Paul's going on and he's listing everything he can possibly imagine and he runs out of things to explain everything and so he says, nor any other created thing. What does that include? Everything, everything, including yourself. You cannot separate yourself. You're created and no created thing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Satan is a created thing. He cannot separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Why is that? Well, because you can't unregenerate yourself because you didn't regenerate yourself in the first place. God regenerated you. The moment that you believe, he caused you to be born again. You didn't justify yourself. God declared you just through faith. In the work of Christ. Now you didn't adopt yourself or redeem yourself or seal yourself. You cannot unseal yourself or unredeem yourself or unadopt yourself because God did all of those things on your behalf. You belong to Him. You can't separate yourself, nor will He, because that is not in His nature, because He is the Good Shepherd who holds on to His sheep. He will not let His sheep go. Now, if you have never, ever experienced the love of the Good Shepherd, let me encourage you this morning. You will never know a love like this. A one who knows your name and calls you by name and never forgets your name. Who never allows you to be released from his grip. No matter how great your failure, you belong to him. And the way that you can enter into that family is just by saying, God, thank you for giving your son Jesus Christ so that I could be adopted into your family. That I could belong to you. The moment that you say yes to God and believe, Jesus Christ removes all of the debt of your sin and he puts you into his grip and you can never be released. And this morning, I hope that if you have already received that, that you just rejoice in that this morning 
And that that's an incredibly freeing and motivating thing for you this week as you walk through this week and you're tested and tried and tempted to be reminded that you belong to one who will never release his grip on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for being our good shepherd, for giving your son to lay down his life on our behalf. I thank you for providing for our needs and for giving us the security that you will never release your grip upon us. Father, I thank you for knowing our name and for never forgetting. Thank you for the security that we have in you and only in you. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.